You're listening to The Cutting Edge, Voices from the AHA. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. The Cutting Edge podcast is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, Hilleberg the Tentmaker has been family-owned and family-run and has specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents, never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Hilleberg tents are the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers the world over, especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who depend on utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, Hilleberg tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. Our guest this episode, Jim Danini, climbed Torrey Eger in Patagonia in 1976. That was 42 years ago. And the amazing thing is, he's still at it. Jim and his wife, Angela, built a house in northern Patagonia more than a decade ago. And now they spend every North American winter down there, exploring the area and bagging unclimbed peaks. This past season, Jim did another first ascent, Cerro Chueco, with a young friend, Tad McRae. AHA editor Andy Anderson spoke with Jim Danini in early March, shortly after he got home from his most recent season in Chile. They spoke about his latest new route and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Jim Danini, thanks for joining us. Welcome to The Cutting Edge. Well, thanks for inviting me. You have a long history with Patagonia, mostly uh, in the Shelton Massif. Um, you're part of the first of Senatore Eger, <clears throat> new rock routes on Raphael and Poinsano, and, um But how did you end up living where you are now, kind of farther north up in Chile? Well, you said I had a long history in the Shelton area. <clears throat> I actually had a long history before Shelton before El Sheltan. When I first went there in the early 70s, where El Sheltan now is, there was not a single building. It was a total wilderness. It was really beautiful. I really don't like El Sheltan. <laughs> <laughs> I climbed there in the 90s and, in the, and up until about 2006, and I kept seeing it getting bigger and bigger. It's kind of Chamonix in, the, in Patagonia, and it works for a lot of people, not so much for me. But a number of years ago, I was climbing in uh, in that area, and a good friend of mine, Cato Abenali, had migrated up into the uh, Aysen region of Chile. He had gone there looking around, and he met a, a younger Chilean woman, fell in love, they got married, and settled in that area. And he kept telling me about this beautiful place, Lago General Carrera, this beautiful lake, and I kept thinking, you know, if it's not the Fitzroy Massif, it's just not Patagonia. But eventually, he prevailed on me, and my wife came and met me in El Shaltan uh, right after my climb, and we took some buses up, and we met Cotto and his, his wife, Ruth, uh, in, uh, in Aysen, which is in Chile, and we fell in love with the place. It's, it's, it's incredibly beautiful. It's sort of under the radar. We like to refer to it as undiscovered or unknown Patagonia, although I can tell you from this summer, it's starting to get known. There was more tourism than I've seen in recent years. And how long was it before you uh, ended up buying a home and spending the summers down there? <clears throat> well, I think uh, we built uh, had the home built about 12 years ago, so it's been a while. 
You know, the Fitzroy uh, Cerro Torre Torriegar Massif is one of the most spectacular mountain areas in the world. I've, I, you know, and, and I've been fortunate enough to climb on all seven continents, and I climbing has taken me to sixty different countries. I'm going back to the Karakoram this summer to the Latok region, and I, I've seen a lot. I mean, I've probably been to more mountain areas than 99.9 percent of climbers. And, you know, it's right up there, the uh, Fitzroy Massif. But it's pretty hostile. I wouldn't want to live there. The uh, ice cap and the mountains come right up pretty much to the desert. It's always wind, not always windy, but very often windy. And it's a great place to visit. It's a great place to climb in. But it wouldn't be, a, I don't think, a great place to actually settle in. In the Isen region, there's a lot of microclimates that are right next, juxtaposed next to each other. You can go from... Uh, rainforest to desert in, in very little time. You can go from dry area to wet area just in a few miles when you're driving down the Carretera Austral. And where we uh, have built our house on Lago General Carrera, it's one of, I think, the view from our deck, it's stunning. You're looking down on this incredible lake that has uh, water the color of the Caribbean. And you look across the lake to the highest peak in Patagonia, the only 4,000-meter peak in Patagonia. You're looking down through uh, green pastures to a blue lake up to um, unbelievable ice falls and, and glaciers. It's a, an absolutely stunning view, and it's a very benign climate. We get very little wind. We don't get very much rain. And um, it's, they, they grow, I mean, they grow uh, fruit trees where we live. They wouldn't do that in Australia. Town. And... Um, there, because there haven't hasn't been any real climbers settling there. I'm probably the first real technical climber that uh, did much down there. There's been very little pressure on the climbing. Now, keep in mind, <laughs> it's not the Fitzroy Torrey Massif. There's nothing like that here. Uh, there's some really good climbing, but it's adventure climbing. It's exploratory climbing. You have to work at getting back to a lot of these climbs and it can be everything from rainforest with bamboo that's almost impenetrable to open langa forest and so you work you, you work for what you get but because of that because there hasn't been much pressure and the climbs are somewhat difficult to get to there's uh, quite a few uh still unclimbed mountains and think about 2018 in a, on a planet with nine billion people or seven billion people you know, unclimbed peaks are relatively rare, and there's a lot of them down here. I just did one this summer. And, it, and it's kind of a huge range, too, right? You, I mean, everything down to Cerro Colorado and that multi-pitch cragging? Well, yeah, it's not a range. It's a, it's this collection of ranges. And uh, you have the main north-south uh, Patagonia Andes, and that's on the west. And that's where... Cerro San Valentin is, and that's the view from our house. And San Valentin is the highest peak in Patagonia, just over 4,000 meters or 13,000 feet. And uh, that's where the uh, Patagonia ice cap is, North Patagonia ice cap. Then you have ranges on Lago General Carrera, the lake that we're on. The lake, by the, by the way, is 95 miles long. It's 714 square miles. And at one point, it's 2,000 feet deep, even though... The surface is only 700 feet above sea level. It's the second largest lake in Patagonia and arguably the most beautiful lake in the world. I think it is. And there are little ranges going up both sides, going from west to east 
on the north side of the lake and on the left side, of the lake, uh, south side of the lake. Now, these ranges, these peaks are only um, 7,500 to 8,000 feet above sea level, but they start at about, you know, 1,000 feet. So you're getting a vertical relief about what you get in the Grand Teton, the vertical relief of the Grand Teton above uh, Jackson Hole. So even though those peaks aren't very high, you get a lot of vertical relief. Then south of there, the, for example, the peak we climbed just recently is a little bit separate from the ice cap. Uh, you know, there's little spurs that go out from the ice cap, and there's there's basically peaks everywhere. They're, they poke up uh, in the strangest places. And then a little bit south of where we are, too, is the second highest peak in Patagonia, San Lorenzo. And uh, it's a massive peak, and it sits out by itself pretty far east of the uh, ice cap. And uh, so it creates its own climate. It, it really it has its own little ice cap, and it's just a massive peak that sits by itself. And that has a massive east face, which is 6,000 vertical feet, and there's no roots on it. Yeah, that's kind of one of the great unclimbed prizes down there, huh? Well, yeah, it, real, <laughs> real dangerous. I tried, I tried a new route on San Lorenzo last year with Jay Smith. We didn't get the weather for it, but uh, it was pretty pretty. <laughs> Pretty out there. We had the sole sole of fifteen hundred vertical feet of snow and ice, and and uh, we almost got uh, chopped by rockfall when it warmed up and rock started cascading down on us. There's some real adventure to be had in Iceland. Yeah. Um, in an earlier AAJ report, a, a partner of yours had called your goal down there to climb the view, um, yeah. the view from your porch, I guess. Uh, so, yeah. what were once you built your house and all that? What were your early climbing explorations in the area like, and where did you kind of start? Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the major part of my view is San Valentin, and there's an amazing route to be done. It's still unclimbed. It's the Northeast Ridge. It's a, I can see it from my house. It's 40 miles away. And I tried to get into it. It's I haven't been able to, I haven't been able to get to it. I went there once with Kelly Cordes. I went there once with uh, Tom Engelbach, and we never got the weather. We uh, had to go out on the Exploratories Glacier, which comes down to 500 feet above sea level, and then go through 2,500 vertical feet of thick rainforest above the glacier. It's kind of crazy. Well, that's part of the view I haven't climbed. And uh, Tad McRae and a couple of friends from Chaltan uh, tried it this year and had a big epic and saw that it's a world-class adventure. That that thing, when that gets done, it's going to be a real, a, you know, a real plum. Okay, so you see that, but then there's some other peaks that are a lot closer, and one uh, is called El Sombrero. It looks like um, a hat, and uh, that hadn't been climbed. And we went up one day, and we climbed two peaks. Well, we had to pack raft across the Leones River, bushwhack up through uh, thick forest. And then one day we climbed a, a smaller peak next to us, and we called that uh, Cerro Condor because the condor was uh, circling us as we climbed it. Next day we went up and did um, what he calls, my friend wanted to call Pisco Sour Tower, which the locals call El Sombrero. And those things are very clearly you know, visible from my house. There's the view. So I did two first ascents of unclimbed peaks there. And, you know, those, these peaks weren't difficult, 5'7 or 5'8. And uh, 
but they were, you know, worthwhile. They were kind of fun and they had them inclined. It was amazing. <laughs> it seems like kind of a kid in a candy store situation down there. Did you, were you able to find any information or in terms of peak names or climbing history when you first moved down there? Not really. Um, you know, uh, the people, the local people, they don't name their horses. They don't name their cats and dogs. They don't name the peaks. <laughs> <laughs> And you know the local, the uh, they're uh, basically gauchos, and they never went anywhere that a horse couldn't go or a cow couldn't go, and that's why, you know, it's a very tough life down there, subsistence agriculture and herding, and uh, it's a very poor area because it's hard to make a living down there. So the people, the, the native people, were spending all their time just trying to make ends meet, and and uh, adventure climbing was. It's not something on their radar. And there was very little information, and that, that's perfect for me. I don't like information. I like, to, I like to go poke my nose into places where I shouldn't poke it and go places where no, no one else has ever been. That's why I got into climbing back in the 60s. I, I was raised in Philadelphia. My father was a history professor and got me reading books of exploration as a, as a kid and I started thinking, you know, God, I want to be an explorer, but um, I was born, I'm born two, two centuries too late. And then I got into climbing and found that climbing was a way on a, you know, on a micro scale for me to go someplace no one else had ever been. I could get on an unclimbed peak or an unclimbed route on a peak, and I could end up pretty much sleeping back down on a ledge where no one had ever been and sticking my hand into a crack where no one had ever been. And so for me, it's a way of fulfilling my exploratory urge. And here I am now, later in life, still still able to do that because I live in this fabulous area where very little has been explored. And another thing, about seven or eight years ago, when my wife was still working, she had left to go back home. And there I was sitting on our deck, and we got a 10-day spell of unbelievably good weather, and I had nobody to climb with. So I got a ride, and I got my pack raft, and I went up the Exploratories Glacier. And I thought I could do this traverse with a pack raft and hiking up glaciers and then pack rafting on rivers and lakes. I thought I could do it in three days. No one had ever been to some of these areas before. It took me almost six days. <laughs> Run out of food, lost my pack raft. Quite an adventure. But, I, I, you know, when I got out there in the middle of this area and I knew that I was standing someplace and no one had ever stood before, I didn't feel frightened. I felt liberated. I, I, the fact that I was depending on myself made me feel really good. That, that's the way I am. And so I still do these exploratory hikes I, down these, up these valleys and where no one really has ever gone. And it's kind of neat. In terms of climbing objectives, it seems like the unifying theme is kind of the most difficult part can be getting to the base of the route. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Just kind of the challenges that you've experienced getting to some of these things. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I never was able to get to the base of the Northeast Ridge on, on San Valentin. My friends just got to it this year, but they couldn't get on the on the on the ridge. Now that was, uh, you started on a, on a uh, dry glacier, a huge dry glacier called the Exploratories Glacier, 
you hike three or four hours up that, you start at 500 feet above sea level, you cross off the glacier, you go through 2,500 feet of really steep, really thick rainforest to, uh, to some meadows, and I call them the Julie Andrews meadows because they're so beautiful, and then from there you have to go up over a massive glacier system just to get to the ridge. And when I first went into the um, Aviano Towers, there was a lot of uh, rainforest bushwhacking to get back to that peak. Two years ago, when I did a, another climb with Tad McRae, the young climber that I, I climbed with just this summer, uh, we were only a, a couple miles further west than we were this summer. But because we were a couple of miles further west, a little bit more moisture, the rainforest was thick and it was bamboo. And we had to go up through that to get to above treeline. Luckily, treeline is only about 4,000 feet. But to get to it is sometimes really hard. Now, this year, the uh, being a couple miles further east and a little bit more sheltered from the rain, it was more open Lenga forest. But there's no trails. So you're finding your way. And uh, it's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah, is a, you know, a machete and some nippers uh, part of the rack out there, huh? You know, I, I decided I tried the machete thing, and I found out that you spend more time with the machete, and you're never going to find your way back the same way anyway. It's better to just kind of snake your way through. <laughs> um, tell me more about this latest uh, first ascent you and Tad did of uh, Cerro Chueco this summer. All right. Well, you know, uh, when you're on the Carretera Austral, which is the road, and you go to a, a very – popular tourist area is called the Confluencia, where the Baker River and the Rio Neff meet, and there's a beautiful waterfall. You go south of there and to what is now the new Patagonia National Park that uh, Chris and uh, Doug Tompkins put together. Right. It's, it's just been declared a, a new national park. It's a thousand square mile park and quite beautiful. As you're going down on the road uh, south of the uh, Confluencia towards the park, you look over to the west and you see this, in the, you know, not that far away, really. It doesn't look that far away. Uh, a really neat triangular-shaped granitic peak on the horizon. And I checked that it's called, his name is Cerro Chueco, which means Twisted Mountain. And uh, I, I did some research that hadn't been climbed. It really hadn't been attempted. So I thought, well, okay, let's see if we can find our way in. Now, we have a, a turbo diesel four-wheel drive Hilux, and so we found some dirt roads going back to some farms. Angela and I, my wife and I, we went back and we got found a way back in about 20 kilometers. And then we saw a valley heading up towards the peak. There were some meadows and then forest. And I thought, well, let's, let's go up there and see if we can get in there. Now, I was thinking to myself, because we weren't very far away from where I had been two years ago with uh, Tad McRae, where the rainforest was really thick. And I said that if that's thick rainforest like the others, uh, you know, I, I knew it was going to be a lot, about six or seven miles of forest to get back into where I wanted to go. I said, we're in trouble. But we, it was just far enough away from the uh, main, main moisture that the uh, forest was what they call lenga, a more open forest. And there was actually a, an old intermittent gaucho trail, quite overgrown, that would disappear uh, and then appear again. We finally got into this valley, and we still had a ways to go, and we camped in the open Linga Forest. The next day, it was kind of raining a little bit, but I decided to go on. I left Angela in the tent, and I hiked further, and I went up this ridge, and I got above treeline, 
and I cached a bunch of gear, and I couldn't even see the peak. Went back down, and we we went back out. I then made two more trips by myself, you know, two day, one night trips. And I first went back up to where I cached that gear and found I had gone the wrong way and found the right way. And then I went back in and then I found a better way out and then went back in again and got to where I'd cached my gear and brought it up higher above tree line to the base of the climb or where you started climbing on the glacier. So it took me three trips to get my gear where I wanted it to, I wanted to have it and find the, the right way in. So that when Tad got down, he was gliding on Aconcagua. I picked him up in Chile Chico, a couple hours from our house, brought him home, said, we're, we're going in tomorrow because the, there's a window. Next day we drove in and uh, did the seven hour approach to where I had cached the gear. And it was only a seven hour approach because I spent three different trips finding the way in and developing uh, the best way. So seven hours in, Spent the night in Buck Tree Line at a beautiful camp. Then we had a 13-hour day up and over 1,500 vertical feet of glaciers and snow. But we had to go a long way because we had to make a long traverse right and then back left. And then 1,000 feet of uh, vertical feet of rock climbing up to about 5'9 plus. Uh, the uh, hard climbing was on pretty good course site. Some of the easier climbing was quite dangerous and loose, but, you know, we, we were careful. And we had a 13-hour day up and back, and it was an extraordinary experience. And then the next day, we hiked seven hours out. So you you don't have the you don't have beta, you don't have guidebooks, you don't have people telling you what to do. You do it all yourself, and uh, I like that. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's 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 a real throwback to you know the expeditions in the old days where getting to the mountain was the was a big <laughs> unknown. <laughs> well, like when. Uh, George Lowe, Michael Kennedy, and uh, Jeff Lowe and I went into Lake Talk in 1978. No climbers had ever been in here before. We just went in. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why I started climbing. And here I am 40, 50 years later, and, I, and uh, it's like a rebirth for me. I'll be 75 in July, and Tad is 32, and, and we're very like-minded. And I can, uh, you know, and we actually – he says that I can still hike better than 80% of the people he climbs with, the young people. And so I, and I see in Tad McRae, you know, kind of me 40 years ago. He's just full of enthusiasm. He doesn't worry. You know, if the rainforest gets really thick, he won't go, oh, man, this is bullshit. Oh, no. He'll go, hey, this is kind of neat. <laughs> you know, and he just – it's great. And, and, you know, climbing with somebody 40 years younger than me is uh, – I don't know. It rejuvenates me. I love it. Yeah, I mean, you're <laughs> in an age. You're in an age when many, or I guess maybe most of your kind of contemporaries have slowed down or quit climbing altogether. What is what keeps you motivated and keeps you out there exploring and looking for these new climbs? You know, man, that's a good question. Uh, people ask me all the time because I'm climbing at the level I am at my age and. And, you know, I say that there's uh, three things you have uh, involved in getting older and climbing. And, and that's one is genetics. And uh, I've been blessed, blessed with never having joint issues of any kind. So because of that, I've never had to stop and not exercise and not climb. And one is lifestyle and the other is luck, you know. And uh, I think I have to live a pretty good lifestyle. But, you know, most of it's motivation because if you – lose motivation, you stop doing things, then you're done. 
but I'd never lost my motivation. And um, I can't explain that. But part of the reason I haven't lost my motivation is I'm not really into the numbers now. I still climb, I think, fairly hard for my age. But it's not the numbers aren't important to me. And I know a lot of climbers, I won't necessarily name them, that when they couldn't put up the same number they were putting up, they lost, they lost their drive. You know, well, I, I can't climb as hard as I could. Well, for me, it's more the exploring now, finding my, uh, you know, getting to these peaks, to, you know, deciphering them, figuring out how to get to the peak itself and then getting up it and getting back, you know. So it's not about the numbers. It's about the ex- exploration. But there's, uh, by the way, when Todd and I were on the top of our climb, we were up there on a perfect day, windless, clear blue sky. Of course, it was raining the next morning. Uh, we could look out to the uh, west towards the ice cap, and we saw our next objective. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's going to be a little <laughs> bit bigger, a little bit bigger peak, a little bit longer approach. But uh, and I, that has been my history. I remember with. Um, uh, my friend Greg Crouch, when I first took him to Alaska, we did a new route in the Roof Gorge on Mount Bradley. We got to the top of Mount Bradley and looked over at the Moose's Tooth, and I saw, hey, that Coolar, I don't think that's been done before. So we saw our next objective from the top of that peak, and the next year we went in and did that. Has there been much local interest or activity from Chilean climbers in the area? Yeah, more and more. You know, uh, there's some young climbers developing there. There's the uh, for a while in the Guadal, Puerto Guadal is this little town we live near. The local dentist be, uh, was a young guy who's gotten into climbing, and there's a they're putting up some sport routes in the area. They really haven't gotten into the alpine thing yet because of gear and everything else. But there's a young kid in the area that just did a 14A. You know, it's amazing. Wow. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the Chile is moving in a better direction than we are in terms of creating national parks rather than, you know, diminishing them. And uh, there's an environmental ethic that has really developed in Chile as the people, more and more people enter the middle class and more and more Chileans are getting into climbing and becoming pretty good rock climbers and alpine climbers. So, yeah, there's mostly in Santiago, but there's even some local people graduate. Now, the people that are in the climbing uh, that are in the area now aren't from there. They, it's just like the people that were climbing in the Tetons weren't from the Tetons. They, they move there. They're moving there, coming down there because of a lifestyle that they want to live. Yeah, I, I kind of noticed that as well. This, I was just down in Cochimo for a few weeks this winter, and uh, it definitely seems like more and more people are – getting into the outdoors, getting into climbing. Um, yeah, it seems like they're doing a pretty good job of publicizing these natural places for the people in the big cities and stuff. You know, and I think it's, I think it's wonderful to, uh, because the, uh, the future of Patagonia is tourism, ecotourism. Because, you know, the people in Patagonia make half the uh, income of the people in Santiago, but everything's more expensive down there because, of, you know, the supply lines. And uh, because there's really very little agriculture, uh, there's only subsistence type farming. There are no, there's very little mineral extraction. There's no oil. So what they have is incredible natural beauty and which never, you know, if you, if you preserve it, doesn't go away. And it's not like 
taking uh, extracting minerals and then they're not there anymore. The beauty is always there if you preserve it. And I think that's the, the uh, economic future of Patagonia. Well, Jim, thanks a lot for taking the time to chat today. And um, yeah, look forward to hearing more about your adventures down there in the next couple of years. Yeah, well, you know, I, when I, if, if Tad and I do this uh, little climb that we saw from the top of the route we did this year, I'll make sure I'll write something up for the AHA for it, okay? Sounds great. <laughs> thanks to Jim Danini for coming on the show this time, and thanks to Andy Anderson for doing the interview. The music in this episode was produced by Augusto Schwartz, Manuel Alejandro, and Jason Tyler Burton. The Cutting Edge is made possible by Hilleberg the Tent Maker, and it's produced by the American Alpine Club. AAC members get a free annual copy of the American Alpine Journal and a host of other benefits. Learn more at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs. <laughs>